Okay. Jumping back into the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, you know, I really don't, you know, we've probably done a Bible study on Hebrews sometime in the distant past, but if we ever did do that specifically, it's been quite some time since we did that. Actually preached through Hebrews one, uh, one other time uh, many years ago, and I don't know about you, but let me tell you, every, every time I sit down, I could get 10 sermons out of every passage that we talk about. I mean, this book is deep. It's not shallow. It's not for the, those who people who like to just skim through things and this, that, and the other. It's deep. And for you to, to have some understanding of it, you've got to dig deep down into the pile. You can't just have a surface understanding of what's going on. It's a very, very deeply rooted spiritual book. And remember this, it was primarily written to Jewish converts and therefore a Jewish audience. That's why many of the illustrations and references that are made in this book have more directly to do with the Jewish people. And remember this church that he's writing to obviously was a church that was mostly, if not entirely, people of Jewish Heritage. Some people would ask, you know, why in the world should Gentiles like us spend time studying the book of Hebrews when it wasn't directly addressed to people that fall in our category? Well, one of the things I would say to you this morning is, I don't know about you, but to me, this book speaks to me very deeply. You know, every week I'm, I am refreshed, I'm learning new things or, or being reminded of old things that I haven't thought about in a long time. But one of the things that we should always come to, and that is this, is, is, is it paints this picture of the greatness of our God that stands above everything else. So anyway, let's just keep that in mind as we read this morning. We're going to uh, be reading uh, chapter 7, verses 11 uh, to the end of the chapter. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for if, uh, for if the people received the law, what, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is a necessary a change in the law as well. For the one of whom those things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not only or not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
For on the one hand, a former command is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not only without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I just want to say this. You need to take note of something. How many times have we seen the word better in this short passage already? You see, this is a whole gist of what's going on here. He's arguing how much better, how far better the covenant under Christ is than the covenant under Moses was. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word uh, of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Mm. I love it. What we find here in this book, and you see this throughout, is the author argues how Jesus is better than this and better than that and better, better, better. We've already covered some of that. But you could understand why it would be a difficult situation for a Jewish person that had, had grown up or been raised up under the Old Testament law in, in the service of the, the priests in the temple etc., to struggle with some of the things that they were being confronted with in regard to Christ. Because, and one of the big issues was this, and, and, and it's made very clear here, and that is that the, 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 the priests were Levites, but Jesus isn't a Levite, he's a Judahite. So how could he possibly be a priest? That's the whole thing that is being argued here. Because what he argues is this, is Jesus is a priest. He's not a Levitical priest, however. He is a Melchizedekian priest, if you want to make that a word. Which is a higher order. He stand, Melchizedek stood above Levi. And you can understand why this would be a stumbling block for Jewish people. But he provides the answer. Jesus is not a Levitical priest. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is a higher order of priesthood. 
Now, you and I don't really struggle probably a whole lot with that, but you, you can understand maybe if you were of Jewish heritage, it might be more of a stumbling block for you. There may be someone in this room that falls in that category. But again, the author, and we're not positive who that happens to be, argues over and over again for the superiority of Christ in all things. Think about it. It really is ridiculous to believe that the sacrifice of a bull, sheep, or goat, or a dove can actually atone for the sins of a human being who's made in the image of God. I mean, real sacrifices have to be valued equally with what they represent. And we know that in the eyes of God that humans stand above everything else because we are the ones that it is said are made in God's image. No one else, nothing else. In other words, logic demands this. That the only thing, the only sacrifice that could atone for the sins of a human being is another human being or something greater. Because we are made in the image of God, we have more intrinsic value, far more intrinsic value than cattle, goats, and sheep, and doves. It was absolutely necessary that a perfect, sinless human being die to atone for the sins of human beings made in God's image. Nothing else would do. We talked a little bit about this mysterious, mysterious character, Melchizedek, just a little bit uh, last time uh, that we were here. Uh, He's called the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, the king of peace. King of righteousness. King of peace. Sounds a lot like prince of peace. Because things like that are true. You know, because of the description given here, there are some people who believe that Melchizedek was like a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. Uh, I don't think we want to go there because the scriptures don't give us any basis for doing that. That we do know this, that this particular person, that was, he, he was, he's the one who, you know, was in, lived in Abraham's day, which is a long time before Christ came. And the argument is Abraham knew himself to be far lesser than this Melchizedek. Great Abraham, the father of the people of God. Described as being without mother, without genealogy, having uh, neither beginning of days nor end of life is eternal. But made like the Son of Man, he abides a priest perpetually. You can understand why some people want to conclude that this is a prefiguring, it is a prefiguring Christ. Not, I'm not saying it is Christ. 
But some people want to conclude that this is a prefiguring or a, or, or, or a pre-incarnation, in a sense, of Jesus. There are people who argue about that. But I don't think we need to go there because Scripture doesn't give us any ground for going there. But again, the whole reason for this is to demonstrate that the priestly order of Melchizedek is far greater than that of Levi. That is how Jesus can be priest and king at the same time. The priesthood of Christ supersedes all others. He is the priest above all priests. He is our priest who stands in the heavenly throne room, in the heavenly places, and continuously intercedes on our behalf before the throne of grace. His function as priest has not ceased just because he has gone, uh, ascended back into heaven. He continues to serve in that capacity in the holy throne room of God. He is our representative. He is the one who stands with us and for us. What I'm telling you is his priestly function has not stopped. It continues and there's a good chance it's going to continue for the rest of eternity. And I want to remind us, we talked about this a little bit uh, a couple of weeks ago. Peter says this, he says, In regard to the priesthood of believers... You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood. In other words, as we become believers, there's a sense in which we become priests. We function as priests in the New Testament church. Subservient, obviously, to the priesthood of Christ. What priests do is they intercede on the behalf of other people. And we talked about this last time. Probably the principal and primary way that you and I are involved in a priestly intercession activity is through our intercessory prayer for unbelievers. So like I said before, I really hope, I hope you all have a prayer list, people that you pray for on a regular basis, and I hope with all hope that at least some of those people are unbelievers. But because the priesthood of Christ is superior, superior to that of the Levites, it's better. It's higher in rank. It's preferable. It's more useful. It's more advantageous. Everything that flows forth from it is also better. Some things he mentions here. Result of it, a better hope, a better covenant, 
This is what he's been arguing for for the whole book of Hebrews and will continue to the, to the end. And it's better, 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 better. Over and over again. The two things he mentions in this passage that we read here is that it's a better hope. Why? Because every other religion calls people to, to hope in themselves. In their own abilities, their own ability to make themselves right and good and all that kind of stuff. But Christianity teaches us as hard as we try, we don't make the mark, any of us, on our own. It just doesn't happen. We don't even come close. It's not even worth talking about. Everyone in this room desperately needs Christ Jesus. Without him, we are lost and without hope absolutely and completely. It's a better covenant. Why? Because it's not based on our own doing. It's based on what Christ has already done. In other words, we are not earning our salvation. We have never earned our salvation. We don't contribute one iota to our salvation. Nothing. Christ has done it all. Dotted every I, crossed every T. We can't add anything to it, but you know what? We can't either subtract anything from it either. And a good bit of this book, the focus of it is to demonstrate to us over and over again how much better, how far superior the new covenant in Christ is than the old covenant of Moses was. We talked a little bit a couple of weeks ago about the priesthood of believers. Peter talks about it. John talks about it. This is what Peter says. He said, but you are a chosen race. Guess what? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what reason? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. John says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. The principal purpose of priests is to intercede. The Levites did it in the Old Testament. Christians do it in the New. You know, very often we don't, we give a lot of credit for what Christ has done for us and don't think that often about what Christ is actually continuing to do for us right now. 725, he always lives to make intercession. In other words, as you and I are sitting here this morning, he is in the heavenly throne room, and one of the things he's doing there is he's interceding for everyone in this room. 
Not a one-time deal, but an ongoing process. Jesus' work of intercession did not end at Calvary. It continues as we speak. Does that make you feel special or what? It should. He kind of brings things or summarizes things in, the, in, in, in verses 1 and 2. We have such a high priest uh, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens and minister in the sanctuary in the, in the true tabernacle which, is, which the Lord pitched not man. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Jesus wants every one of us to have real assurance of our salvation. To know that we're saved. Not just hope that we're saved or think maybe I am, possibly I'm not. He wants you to have assurance. But real assurance doesn't come based upon anything that you do or you don't do. Real assurance is the gift of Christ. And the Holy Spirit bring it to bear upon each one of us. See, the big thing is this. Is the Levitical priests were sinners just like all the rest of us. They, they needed an intercessor just as much as we do. They were not up to the task. They could not truly intercede on behalf of anyone else because they were in need of an intercessor themselves. Sometimes I think people have a wrong idea of things that have transpired. That Jesus, when he went back to heaven, he just, you know, took up his seat at the right hand of God the Father and just continued to do all the same things he's done all along and this, that, and the other and, uh, and whatever. I think there are some people who have the idea that maybe Jesus gave up his humanity when he went back to heaven, and that just is so unscriptural it's not funny that he is physically in the heavenly throne room as we're speaking uh, this morning, and he will be that as that for all of eternity. That once he became man, he's man permanently. Unique, absolutely unique. He's unique. So why should it surprise us that such an absolutely unique person could be both a priest and a king at the same time? Seven twenty-five. because Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through 
him because he always lives to intercede for them. What that says to me is this, is that Jesus' act of intercession wasn't a one-time deal. It's an ongoing thing that will go on for all of eternity. In other words, Jesus didn't intercede for you just once. He does it always. Some people might ask the question, once Jesus completed his uh, salvific work here on earth, why didn't the Son of God just go back to being the Son of God exclusively and forgetting about this humanity stuff? Why didn't he return back to his pre-incarnation existence? Was it really necessary for the Son of God to retain his human nature Obviously, it was because he did and because he has. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's doing it as we speak. And he will never, ever, ever cease. In his confession, St. Augustine propose that there are four possible states of mankind in relation to sin. The first one was man's uh, condition before the fall, or what's called the pre-fall disposition in, in regard to sin. And he, he would say there that people were able uh, to sin, but at the same time they were able to not sin. How do we know they were able to sin? Because Adam and Eve did do it. How do we know they were able not to? Because for a time they didn't. But after that, we entered into what he calls the post-fall condition in, in which we are able to sin and we're unable to not sin. In other words, sin has something to do with everything there is about our doing. Every, every, even our very best works are tainted with sin. And very often because we do what we do for the wrong reasons. But see, guys, things change when we're saved. In other words, sin doesn't have the same attraction or the same hold on us as it did before we came to faith. Because you and I are still able to sin because we do it, right? No one should have to prove that to anybody in this room, that we are still able to sin even though we're saved. But the big change is this, is that even though we're able to sin, we're also able to not sin.
In other words, very often when it comes to this stuff, we make an active choice whether to do it or not do it. But, they're not, God is not done with us. We are not in our final perfected state. And hallelujah, there's something far better coming. And in, in, in our eternal state, we will be able to not sin, but we will also be unable to sin. It will never be a part of our picture ever again. Ever. You understand why he's arguing here over and over again how Jesus is better, 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 better. A better hope, a better guarantee of a better covenant. And that covenant we call the covenant of grace. Because it's by grace that we've been saved, and that's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God that no one can do what? Brag about it. Hence, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus stands between us and God the Father, a constant reminder to the Father that we belong to him. better covenant a better hope what I would say to you is that the author of Hebrews could probably go a little bit further than saying a better hope he could have said it's the only hope the only hope we have there is no other ours is a religion of many things but one of those is hope I don't know about you, but I'm more every day hoping for a better life to come. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with sin. I've had it up to my eyeballs. It's coming out my ears. And I'm not talking about your sin, I'm talking about mine. Let me tell you, the closer you draw to Christ, the more clear your sin is going to be to you. And if you just don't see it, that should tell you right there that you're not so close as you think you might be. Paul wrote these words. And Jesus is our hope. I hope that's what you're getting out of this. He's our only hope. Paul wrote this, he said, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these 
is love. Those three things, faith, hope, and love, are often called the three Christian virtues. Love takes center stage, but faith and hope are also part of the picture, an important part of the picture. There are often those three things, faith, hope, and love, are called the three pillars of the Christian faith. Have you ever heard that before? So it comes down to this. Where does your hope lie? In me, myself, and I? Or in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me tell you, your life will be a reflection of how you answer that question. In every case.